Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Uh, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's wonderful to be back with you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. It's where we left off at the end of June, and we're going to pick back up the beginning of John chapter 6. As you're finding John 6, I just want to say uh, really a heartfelt thank you to the elders, uh, my fellow elders of the church that have cared for me behind the scenes and encouraged me, uh, for the brothers that have, have helped to uh, continue the preaching of the word. I know that's not singularly my task here. It's primarily my task, but not singularly, and I'm very thankful for the faithfulness of the word preached, and I'm just really thankful for you, for your patience, for your kindness, for your grace, for your love to me, and I'm thankful to the Lord. I think of Paul's words to a young pastor in First Timothy. He says that this is a trustworthy saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But he displayed his infinite grace so that I would be an example of his grace and mercy to other people. And I think that is the Lord's purpose in my life. Well, as we look at John chapter 6, uh, my temptation is to share with you things that uh, the Lord has, has shown me over these past few months. But I, I really don't think that's what you need. Maybe that'll come up at other times and in other settings. In the midst of a turbulent world with hurricanes and uh, terrible geopolitical military situations going on around the world. There's so much we could think about. There's so much that we could say, but I, I think the best thing that we can give ourselves to is getting into God's Word and understanding how it applies to our lives and thinking again, getting back into John chapter 6. So I think that's the best way I can serve you this morning. John 6 now, I know that I, I have a bit of a reputation for hyperbole, but John 6 might be the Romans 8 of John. <laughs> it might be the, 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 the mountain peak of this gospel, or John 10, or, or John 17. I don't know, one, one of the others. But John 6 is, is a key chapter in the gospel of John, and we're going to take some time to work our way through it, and it opens up with a familiar story. In fact, the story, the, the, the scene that we're going to cover this morning, the feeding, the first feeding of the multitude, the 5,000 men, obviously many more people than just 5,000, is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, that's significant. And here in this opening portion of John chapter 6 is the narrative of that scene. And then really, the rest of the chapter, with the addition of Jesus walking on the water, which we'll get to next week, the rest of the chapter is Jesus' explanation of the theological significance of the event that we're going to read today. So I want to work through this text with you and then prepare us for Jesus' discourse in the rest of John 6. Now, I think, here's, I think, a key to understanding this passage. All humanity is deeply hungry. 
And don't think just in terms of physical hunger. The physical hunger that we see in this passage is a picture. It's meant to point us to something deeper than just temporary physical hunger. It's meant to point us to spiritual hunger. All of us, every human being wants something. We all need something. And from that one great category of hunger that all of us fall into, we can break down all of humanity into two groups, those who don't really know what they're hungry for and seek to appease that hunger and satisfy that hunger with all of these broken counterfeit devices, and those who do understand what they're truly hungry for and find it in Jesus. That's what I think John 6 is ultimately about. Now, the two headings, I don't really have any points that we're going to put on the screen But if you want to kind of outline, you can just sort of hang it on these two words. We're going to see spiritual hunger and spiritual provision. I think that's the point of this opening portion, really the point of all of John chapter 6. Well, let me read and stop along the way and comment, and then we're going to look more deeply. We're going to circle back and end by looking at spiritual hunger and spiritual provision. Verse 1 of John 6. Now, this is the fourth sign of Jesus in the gospel of John. And John is unlike the other Gospels, which are a little bit more chronologically arranged. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more chronological, more of a historical narrative. Maybe some people think that maybe Mark wrote first. I'm not sure. And the others sort of used him as a kind of source. We're not sure. I don't think that's particularly important for our purposes today. But the point is, is that John is different from the other Gospels in that it is arranged differently. Think of John as being kind of John accumulating the greatest hits, the the greatest scenes in the life of Jesus. And his purpose in writing this Gospel, one of the closest apostles to Jesus during his earthly ministry is explicitly stated at the end of his gospel. He's saying that I am writing these things. This is in John chapter 20. I'm writing these things so that you may believe and believing in him, you may have life in his name. And John, one of the things, one of the literary devices that John is doing in his gospel is he is arranging this testimony of Jesus so that we would believe around seven signs. And this is the fourth sign that we find in John. So it's not necessarily chronologically oriented as strictly as the other Gospels are. It's more wanting to show us the person and work and reality of the deity of Jesus and what he has come to do. So verse 1 in John chapter 6 writes, John writes this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. If you're looking for that sea on a map, it's really a lake, and it was just commonly called a sea. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So that's referring back to a previous time. It could have been as as much as a year ago where we left off in John chapter 5 where Jesus is healing people. It's obviously attracting a lot of attention. People are coming to him. And notice why they are coming to him. There's a kind of curiosity. People are following Jesus. They were interested. You might say this is the first kind of clue that they were hungry for something. They wanted to know what was going on. Maybe many of them were sick and they wanted to be healed themselves. And so they're following Jesus. It's so interesting that we find out later as we'll read that they kind of lose track of where they are in the time of the day. And it ends up with this great sort of kind of mini crisis where you got thousands of people hungry. Verse three, Jesus went up on 
the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6 is important. He said this to test him, for he knew, for he himself knew what he would do. Now let's, let's pause there and fill in some blanks here. Because again, as I mentioned, all other three other of the gospel accounts record this miracle, and they give us a little bit more detail. Matthew includes the detail that he had compassion. He saw the people following him, and he had compassion on them, and he healed the sick. Mark tells us that he taught them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then Luke adds the detail that he spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured all those who needed healing. So in the account that we're reading in John, it seems like it happened rather quickly. Jesus is just walking, you know, all of a sudden he's not really aware. You almost get the impression that he's not really aware, you know, that, that thousands of people are following him and he sits down on the hill and it's like, oh goodness, what, look at all these people. That's, that's not really what's going on here. They're following him. He sits down and some of the details that the other gospel writers fill in tell us that this is a long afternoon and that Jesus is teaching people and he's healing people. And then he, in verse 5, he asks this question, okay, it's been a long day. It's obvious that we're far from town. I've cured, I've healed a bunch of people. I've taught them about the kingdom of God. And he asks his disciples, he asks Philip, Specifically, we're to, we to buy bread so that these people may eat. And verse 6 gives us the important detail that he said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, just, just a note on this intentional testing of Philip. The Lord never in the Scriptures leads his people into sin. That's not what he's doing. He's not testing Philip to sort of set him up for a, you know, the, the big X on family feud. That's not, Jesus is not trying to shame Philip, and he never shames his people. But the Bible does clearly tell us that God arranges, Jesus here in the flesh, God the Son, does arrange providential opportunities to stretch and to build us and to strengthen us. And we see that's exactly what Jesus is doing specifically with Philip and I think with all of his disciples here. And we'll see a little clue about that towards the end of the story. In fact, James says this very thing. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if something is in front of you that you know will destroy you, that you know is wicked and sinful, never fall under the illusion, the false lie that it's God that it's putting there in front of you to see how you can handle it. In fact, James in before verse 13 and James 1 verses 2 and 3 gives us this sovereign providential purpose that God though is at work in everything that we face. He says, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I made the point earlier a couple months ago when we were back in John chapter 1 that Philip is mentioned in the Gospels, and there's this kind of hint, especially in John, where Philip is always mentioned last in every list of the apostles. 
and he's always sort of in a kind of subtle way. His name is brought up, and he never quite gets it right. And I made this point that, you know, Philip is, you know, he's a butter knife. He's, he's, not, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But praise God that God uses butter knives. And when we look at Philip and we see even this providential arranging of this question where he, he seems to kind of get it wrong. I mean, come on. We look at Philip and we look at really all of the disciples and can't we say, wait a minute now. You've been following Jesus for a while now. And we could go back. You were with him in Canaan when he turned the water into wine. And you were with him in John chapter 5 when he did those healings. And you've seen all of these things. And, and, and really, you don't have the wherewithal to think and know that if there's a shortage of food, that you're with the one who can supply it all? Isn't it easy? Isn't 2020 easy? Especially when we're criticizing other people. And when we look at this, look, Philip is not here so that we would see a picture of Jesus in kind of scorn and disgust, looking down in disappointment at Philip. We are Philip. We're like him. And yet God is merciful. He's kind. He's gracious. And he ordains situations that we are tested. And when we go through that test, we are always meant to see that we need God. And that's what he's done for Philip, and that's what he does for us. Philip answered him, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, that's not a small sum of money. 200 den a denarii was like one day's one. Denarii would be like one day's wage. And so 200 would be like, you know, about eight months' salary for an average person back then, which that's a pretty good sum of money. But, I mean, when you have to feed thousands and thousands of people, that's not going to get you anything, really. That's not going to make any headway into providing for these people. And so, obviously, Philip's answer is, man, this is, we have nothing. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, again, let's pause here. The other gospel writers fill in more of an account. You know, don't, don't think of all of this. Sometimes it's easy to read this scene in John 6, 1 through 15, and in your mind sort of played out like it's all happening in the matter of minutes. But this is a long afternoon. And Mark tells us that they went out into the crowd to find what the food situation was. And we're going to read here in the next verse, in verse 10, that there was 5,000 men, which would mean that that's not even counting women and children. So a very conservative estimate would be that there's at least 10,000 people. There may, may be likely much more, but let's just say conservatively 10,000 people there. And it would have taken a while to work through the crowd. Hey, anybody, anybody bring lunch? And they come back, and the report to Jesus is, is that there is one boy who has five loaves of bread and two little fish. Now, here's an interpretive lens that I want you to be aware of, okay? Oftentimes, when we read this passage, or when we teach this passage, or maybe you've been in situations like this, immediately, that's something else. I mean, that's a, that's a really important detail, that 10,000 people 
would get so caught up in their curiosity about who Jesus is that they would find themselves wandering into the wilderness away from town. And oh my goodness, before we know it, the sun is going down. Everybody's hungry. What do we do? We've got one boy out of 10,000 people who's packed a lunch. Okay, that's striking. And the temp- listen to me now. The temptation is now to see the point of this passage as this boy who has packed his lunch unlike anybody else, and he gives it to the disciples, and now we're going to know, because most of us know the story, Jesus is going to multiply this thing that this boy has brought to him. Now, that is not insignificant. But friends, the point of the story is not that if you just give your little bit to Jesus, boy, look what he can do with it. Now, is that true on some level? Yes. A thousand times, yes. But friends, that's not the primary or secondary or even tertiary point of the story. If you've said that about this passage, that's a true thing to say. But don't let that minor truth obscure the major truth of the passage, which is Jesus in his provision, which we'll get to in a moment. So verse 10, Jesus says, have the people, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Again, this took time. Think about just the, the, the time to sort of order people in rows in some sort of way that it would be organized. And of course, obviously there's more than just 5,000 people there. It's just counting the men. In verse 11, now I want you to take note of verse 11. Verse 11 is really striking in how unstriking it is. This is noteworthy. Okay, the miracle, one of the most important and well-known miracles in all of the Bible happens somewhere in the white space between a comma and a letter in verse 11. And it's, it's, it's just kind of assumed. Let me read verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, comma, one space on your keyboard, lots of stuff is happening. He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. That is remarkably nondescript and subtle for such a major, in fact, this was the most public miracle that Jesus did in his life and ministry in the sense that it was in front of the most people. And it's not like, you know, he did some sort of, you know, incantation, waved a staff, and said, I declare, appear. And this big, you know, truckload, semi-truckload of loaves and fish just sort of appears in the back, and everybody goes, oh, yeah. It seems like there's this kind of subtle, kind of one after another, Jesus is he's, he's breaking the bread. That, that detail of breaking the bread is not mentioned in John's account, but that he broke the bread is mentioned in all of the other accounts. He prays, and then he, he just, he, 
he distributes it to the disciples. It, was it just a stream of several hours of the making of bread and fish? And just think about this bread and fish. I mean, this is the best, freshest bread and this is fish that have never swam. This is fish that maybe don't even smell like fish. It's so good. It's the freshest bread you've ever eaten. I am famous in my house for, look, when you, get, when you see something in the store and it's, there's a date on the package, you guys know that is a, that's a eat-by, not a sell-by date, right? So, like that bread, that milk, I mean... Just let it, you got a week or two after the date that's on the thing. You can shake that thing up and knock up the curd a little bit. You get a, you get a loaf of bread, and there's a, there's a little bit of, you just peel that little part that's kind of getting green, and you just eat the rest of it, right? That's the way we did it in El Centro. I don't know how you bougie people here in Columbus, Georgia do it. But, you, you know, this is the freshest, the freshest fish, the freshest bread you will ever eat. Can you imagine being one of the people who ate bread that was never wheat or barley? You ate a fish that never swam. Man, everything's downhill from there. Like, you know, you go, you go on, what's the, the Yelp? You know, the, 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 the uh, app where you're, 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 you're giving the review on the restaurant. Man, nobody is matching the food that is eaten here. But notice the subtlety of it. He just distributes it. And notice here... What, what he says, he distributed them. So clearly, I don't think that Jesus individually, I don't think that John is making the point that Jesus individually distributed the portion to each 10,000 people. That would have taken days. But the emphasis is here that regardless of whether Jesus was multiplying it as he went, puts it in a basket, hands it to his 12 disciples, who then are entrusted with this system to get the food out to the people. The point is, whether his disciples are used or whether other people are used in the distribution plan, that the source, it all ultimately comes from Jesus. And that's a kind of picture of all of the ministry of every church. Look, God will raise up people. He will use people. He will use pastors. He will use teachers. He will use mentors. He will use people to disciple one another. But the source of all good things is God himself. So we should not look to one another. We should not. Tyler prayed for it earlier that no glory would come upon us or what we're doing. But everything that we do in a sense where we're helping one another is to shine the light on Christ who alone distributes and gives to his people. It's all through him. And let's be aware that we live in an American culture that wants to make much of mankind. And that is often a temptation in ministry. It is. It's a temptation for me. I want to be well thought of. I want to be liked. I want a little bit of credit. But I want to be humble about the way I receive my credit. So, uh, oh, 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 yeah. Friends, it's, ah, it's sickening. It's sickening. And here we see all of the glory, all of the credit goes to Jesus who distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, that's important, they were all, every hungry belly was filled. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Nothing, there was nothing wasted in the kingdom of God here in this little picture, this beautiful miracle miracle. 
everybody had their hunger satisfied with the best bread and the best fish ever. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, just a little note here. There's been much ink spilled about the significance of these 12 baskets. Is John including that as a kind of picture of the the symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament? Maybe. That's, that's possible. Uh, I, I read a few commentators who I think are, are more, their, their point is a little bit more persuasive, that maybe this is kind of a subtle uh, point that Jesus is making to his disciples. There's 12 disciples that are with him, and each one of them who didn't display the faith that they probably could have and should have in turning to Jesus rather than their month's pay or, or the little bit that a boy has. In, instead of looking to Jesus, they, they, they looked into the crowd and they looked to their own resources. As they left this scene, there was a basket for each one of the disciples to carry as a kind of sweet, gentle reminder from Jesus that just, just remember, next time, boys, look to me. Look to me. Verse 14 and 15 ends, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, capital P, who's coming to the world. That's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses says, there's coming a prophet after me that the Lord will raise up, who will teach the people. And these Old Testament Jews, these, these first century Jews are thinking about that Old Testament writing. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And once again, as we've noted several times already in John, in our study through John, there's this misunderstanding of what they truly needed. The people wanted a king to oust the Roman Empire to make their political situation better. But what they truly needed was a king to free them from their spiritual captivity of sin. And we'll bump into that theme again and again as we go through John. But now I just want to land this plane by spending the balance of our time thinking about these two thoughts, spiritual hunger and spiritual provision. First, spiritual hunger. We, we see, I think the people, the crowd, are a kind of picture of hunger. First, it's a kind of hunger of curiosity. They just wondered what Jesus was, was doing. He's this teacher that's growing acclaim. He's healing people. And, and then secondly, it, it was a hunger, at least for some of the people, for physical healing. And then as the day progressed, it became a hunger for physical food. But the point is, is that the crowd, this crowd of at least 10,000 people is a kind of picture. Whatever their hunger was, it was physical. And their physical hunger is a picture of our spiritual hunger. And God in his sovereignty is arranging this scene in John 6 to be a sign to demonstrate what humanity truly needs. But we are ignorant. We're often ignorant of what we truly need. And why are we ignorant? Why, why are these people so ignorant? Why are even the disciples seemingly ignorant despite the fact that they had seen Jesus in the early year of his ministry operating in power is because, friend, of sin. Mankind in his natural state, and that's what this crowd is a picture of, gropes around in the darkness, unable to see their true need. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so, friends, I want you to view the world as, as, as really spiritual blind, sp- spiritually blind. That's the testimony of Scripture is that natural man, the natural world, people that have not had their eyes opened to their need, to their sin, to the grace that is in Christ, to their need for provision in Christ, we grope around not truly knowing what we need. In a couple months, we're going to get to John chapter 9, which is devoted almost primarily to this man who is born blind, and Jesus heals him of his blindness. And his blindness and then his sight through the miracle of Jesus, is a kind of picture of all humanity. Friends, when we look at this crowd, we shouldn't look at them as dunces or people who just didn't get it. They are a picture of all of us and before the Lord shines the light of Christ into our hearts. We are blind to our real need, and we grope about seeking to have our hunger filled, and we don't know what we truly need until the Lord shows us. And even after salvation, it's not like once you become a Christian, all of a sudden you're cured from all of these counterfeit hunger pains. Even after our salvation, we don't need all the stuff that we think we need. We, we, want, we want more social status. We want the perfect job. We want kids that achieve this or that. We want a claim. We want more stuff. We want more trinkets, etc., etc., etc. And even people that have been walking with the Lord for many years, even myself, I see this in myself. We just want more and more and more thinking that that will satisfy us. And it is a lie. Again, it's easy to see it in others, and it's really, really hard to see it in yourself. That's why we need each other. That's why we need honest church community. That's why we need people to know each other. That's why we need accountability. That's why we need to know one another just beyond an hour and a half on Sunday morning. None of us have 20-20 vision on ourselves on this. Being a Christian, having the eyes of your heart open to your true need, does not immediately deliver you from false spiritual hungers. Our world, our hearts hunger for food. And when we take the world's food, it will never satisfy. Here's just a question before we move on to provision. Is what are you, be honest with yourself, what are you really hungry for? What, what drives you day to day? Now, even if you're a believer, be honest with yourself. Now we know, we know the theologically right answer, to be right with God through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. And that is absolutely objectively true. But as you walk through life, it's so easy to just be pulled away from the primacy of that one great need. And to still, even though you may be born again and have a new heart, to still be caught up with a taste in your mouth for all of these things that you don't truly need. Be honest with yourself. What are you truly hungry for? What really do you want? And if you're honest with yourself and you answer that question, honestly, and by the way, it does no good not to answer that question honestly because it's not as if the Lord doesn't already know. I mean, who are we kidding, right? You know? I mean, we can, we can kind of put on a little face for everybody else and say the right thing in a Bible study that won't make the living room just go, oh! 
But know that we all have things in our hearts that if we said them out loud would make the living room go, <gasps> okay, let's just, can I just do that as a common denominator? All of us, every single, okay, one person's giving me a north, south, north. Every one of us, if we truly unburdened our heart and said some of the things that we still long for that we know are wrong, or that we know are broken, or that we know are won't satisfy, if we really vocalized it at times, it would shock people around us. But here's the good news about it. Everybody else has got some stuff too. So let's just be a kind of shock-absorbing society, right? That's, what we need. That's part of Christian community. That's what grace does. It absorbs the shock. And you got some shock in you. I'll tell you that much right now. I, you got some shock in you. I got some shock in me. Let's shock one another. I'm getting off course now. Let me get back into the thing. Here's, here's the point. Friends, we're not going to pass the mic. We're not going to turn this sanctuary into a big living room. Don't get nervous. My point is, right now, between you and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, I pray, is working on you, and he's asking us all this question, what are you still longing for that won't satisfy? What are you falsely hungry for? And answer that question honestly. And here's the beauty of the gospel. When you answer that question honestly, when you come to God, then you can follow it up when you see the distance between your desires and what God actually has for us, which is good. The beauty of the gospel is that when we come to God with those wrong answers or with those incomplete answers or with the, 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 the heart of ours that isn't quite where it should be, he doesn't cast us away. He, he wants us to come to him. So the follow-up question to the honest answer is, God, change my heart. That's the constant prayer of the Christian throughout their life. God, please change my heart. Salvation, Christianity, following Jesus is not a one-time hit of grace and then you coast into the finish line. It is a fight. It is a plod. It is a struggle. It is rolling up your sleeves with other Christians and glorifying God in your humility and daily repentance. God changed my heart, and God delights in meeting the honest prayer of people like us who, even though we've tasted the bread of heaven, still at times go for the stale bread of this world. That's the picture, friends. We've got this pure bread, and we still go for the moldy bread of this world. God delights in day after day after day re-satisfying us, which is the second thing I want us to think about is provision. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy us. Jesus, Jesus is not only the one who provides, he is, in fact, the provision himself. And there's this, there's this kind of picture I want us to think about these words where he broke the bread and then they were filled. So, so in a sense, Jesus is a kind of, a kind of dual provision for us. He, he himself is the provision for our greatest need. And what is our greatest need? Well, because of our sin, we have been separated from a holy God. And so Jesus doesn't just provide us daily by sustaining us with his bread, with who he is, with the body of Christ, with his word. Yes, a thousand times yes. But even before that, Jesus is the provision. He is the bread broken for our sin. So when the other gospel writers make that note that Jesus breaks the bread and then he prays, I think there's something embedded in that that is pointing 
to the cross. In fact, in the Last Supper, before he is crucified at the end of the Gospels, Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body, which some manuscripts say is broken for you. So Jesus, the bread of heaven, in fact, Jesus calls himself that. Later on in John chapter 6, he says, I, as he's explaining this miracle, he says, I am the bread of life. And the bread of life, before it can feed us, must be broken for us. And Jesus is broken on the cross. And he's broken on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. He takes the wrath. He takes the punishment for us on the cross. And he satisfies the judgment that should be ours. He's the bread that's broken for us. But that's not the whole story of Jesus' provision. Not only does he provide himself as the sacrifice, he is raised, he's been risen again from the grave, and now he is our daily bread that feeds us. He's not only broken, but he fills us daily. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, a little bit later, we'll get to eventually. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we see that Jesus is our our bread. Jesus is the bread. That's the point of this chapter. And he is our bread of sacrifice. It is broken for us to bear the punishment of God. Nobody, nobody will get to heaven in their own righteousness. Nobody will stand before God saying that I was a pretty good person. The only hope that you have is that Jesus on the cross was broken for you and absorbed the punishment for your sins and took it upon himself and gave you his righteousness. That's what it means to trust in Jesus, to believe in him. Not that You know, if you give him a little bit, he'll meet you halfway. That there's nothing that you can do. That Jesus on the cross was broken for you. That he bore the wrath of God. That he extinguished, he removed, he satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. And he gives you his righteousness. That's what it means to trust in him. And if you haven't done that, that's the most important thing that you can do. Jesus has led you into the wilderness. And he has shown you your need for him. And what you must hunger and thirst for now is what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That's what you must believe. That's what you must taste and see. That's what you must, spiritually speaking, that's what you must eat. But not only does he do that, he also sustains us daily. Now, practically, what does that look like? Now, it's easy to say. It is so easy to say. Like, Jesus died on the cross for our sins He was the bread broken for us, and Jesus sustains us daily. He is the bread that we eat, and if we eat from him, we will never hunger, and we will never thirst. Now, I can say that. It's easy to say. Who would disagree with that in this room? But friends, let's admit, and I end with this, that there is a often in our life after we trust in Christ a gap between the objective truth that we all believe that Jesus is our daily bread and the subjective reality of what we actually experience. There's a gap between the two. And that gap is where most of life is lived, and that gap is called our sanctification. And how do we fight that gap? How do we, how do we engage that gap? Friends, we engage it by 
gathering here week after week and opening up his Bible and reminding each other, man, I, I, I've been eating moldy bread, the world's moldy bread this, this week. I need, I need a fresh, the loaf from heaven. It, it's, it's just as simple as us remembering the truths of the Bible, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. It's us knowing each other, confessing one another, being gracious with one another. It's us being humble, hungry people that confess our need for Jesus. And slowly but surely, subtly, God just grows a person. He matures them, and he weans us from the world and gives us more of a taste for him. That's the Christian life. It's rugged, it's hard, it's plotting, it's a fight, but that's what it means to feast on the bread of life. And that's what this passage is pointing us to today. Jesus, John 6, 35, says again, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Christian life is a daily plod of living that out after you've trusted in it once and for all. Let's pray. Lord, help us with this truth. Take, take my words and take this passage and re-satisfy us. May we be satisfied with the bread from heaven. And for my brothers, for my friends that are here that have never truly tasted, they've never trusted in the bread that was broken for them on the cross, may they do that today. And now as we sing to you and as we pray, as we meditate, as we confess, as we repent, Lord, meet us. In Jesus' name, amen.